0: Beloved, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. If you have been with us uh, throughout this thus far 87-week study of Romans, your Bible should flop right open to it. Uh, Romans chapter 9. uh, This morning we are looking at verses 14 through 18. In order to give us a little context, however, I'm going to read uh, uh, starting in verse 1. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Holy, inerrant, authoritative, uh, inspired, and all-sufficient word. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the Israelites. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Our Father, as we come uh, once again to this uh, wonderful passage of Scripture, but one that uh, is often confusing uh, in the minds of of people, we pray that even today you'd bring clarity, uh, that you would help us as we continue in this study of the book of Romans, and particularly chapter 9 over these last several weeks Oh, Lord, and as we study it, we pray that the aim and the end of this would be your glory and a more exalted view of our great God and of your son, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen. You might be seated. In most major cities, uh, urban centers like New York and London and Paris, you will find a celebrated portrait gallery. Uh, perhaps some of you have attended and, and been to these. If you've ever been to one, you'll know that they, they feature fine portraits of significant historical figures drawn or painted by notable artists. For centuries, it has been the custom of royal houses and uh, certain government officials and war heroes and, and others to commission portraits. They do this for the sake of posterity and also so that they can be remembered in a particular way. Of course, the process doesn't always translate into an accurate uh, depiction of the subject, especially when the painting is on the subject's terms rather than the artist's. For example, think about some of the 16th century paintings of King Henry VIII. Perhaps you've uh, been uh, over to uh, London and Cambridge and these places where you'll see uh, these portraits, and uh, they are often uh, not very accurate. Uh, King Henry VIII is portrayed as being much skinnier uh, than he actually was in real life. I suppose in our own day we have ways of manipulating photos to make ourselves look skinnier and, uh, and flawless uh, and perfect. Uh, but this, is, this also happened in these days. And then there was the the famous painting of Napoleon by Jacques-Louis David. And uh, this was Napoleon crossing the Alps on a beautiful horse. Uh, actually, he made this trek on a mule, uh, which wouldn't have looked so grand, of course, if uh, the reality was, was set forth. Dear ones, some of the portraits in these galleries, these portrait galleries, are magnificent and reported to be true to life. But none of them, of course, perfectly represents the subject. Human error, bias, and hubris, and other factors always play a part. Dear ones, this is also true when mankind paints his own portrait of God and of his ways. Because of fallen reason and pride and sin, Humanity seeks to portray God so often on their own terms rather than on God's. Instead of looking externally to Scripture for a true representation of God and his ways revealed by the Holy Spirit, humanity will often look within. When this happens, and it often does, the portrait is never accurate. Never. It is always a misrepresentation, and it says more about ourselves than it does about God. Dear ones, it's precisely because of this problem that the Apostle Paul draws attention to a question commonly asked in reference to the doctrine of election, but quite frankly, never should be. Never should be. Because this question, dear ones, is an irreverent one. And even according to some, it is a blasphemous one. The question is found in verse 14, and again is in reference to election. Anticipating what will arise in the minds of his detractors, Paul asks, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there unrighteousness? With God. In other words, does God's sovereign choice of Jacob and not Esau to exercise divine freedom to show mercy to some and not to others make God unjust, unrighteous? Does this in some way make God unfair? What would be your response this morning, I might ask you, as you think and contemplate this? I'll tell you, as I've shared in previous sermons, that's in personal experience, there was a time when I was grappling, grappling with these things, and I was asking this same question and thinking that I knew better. And so this is an experience of many. The inspired Apostle Paul emphatically answers this question with this phrase, by no means, exclamation point. By no means is God unjust. And, beloved, my prayer is that after we finish our, uh, our, our, our study of, of Romans 9, after we unpack uh, the apostles' defense of God as God, that we would answer this question with Paul, declaring, Is God unjust? By no means. No way. Not a chance. Does divine election make God unjust? That's impossible. And I'm also praying that we would have the heart and understanding of the the humbled King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, when he expressed that God's, quote, dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, that all inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Now listen, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Christ's church, our God reigns and he does whatever he pleases. And all that he does that pleases him while being mysterious is perfectly holy, righteous, and just in every way, including, dear ones, his purpose of election. This past week, I came across a wonderful definition of divine election by the 17th century Dutch theologian Wilhelmus Abrakel. It's in volume one of his marvelous four volume work, The Christian's Reasonable Service. And Abrackel defines election this way election is the foreordination of God, whereby he eternally, certainly, and immutably has decreed to lead some specific individuals identified by name unto eternal salvation not because of foreseen faith or good works, but motivated purely by his singular and sovereign good pleasure to the glory of his grace. Motivated purely by his singular and sovereign good pleasure to the glory of his grace. This, beloved, is the sacred and comforting truth that the Apostle Paul wants to establish in this section of his magisterial epistle to the Romans. Why? To establish that God's word indeed has not failed in relation to Israel's rejection of the Messiah. Also, that God is sovereign and free to exercise that sovereignty. And thirdly, to underscore the truth that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so if you are taking notes this morning, I have divided our text into three uh, headings. Uh, They are these. Number one, a predictable question from sinful humanity. We see this in verse 14, a predictable question from sinful humanity. Number two, a portrait of sovereign mercy and compassion. A portrait of sovereign mercy and compassion, verses 15 and 16. And then finally, a picture of sovereign power and judgment, verses 17 and 18. A picture of sovereign power and judgment, verses 17 and 18. So first of all, let's look at a predictable question from sinful humanity. Look with me again at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice on God's part? It's a a predictable question, uh, but it's also a sad one, isn't it? You can't imagine, prior to the fall of mankind, Adam and Eve asking this kind of a question, challenging the holiness and the righteousness of God because of His ways. As I mentioned before, Some would call this question a blasphemous one. Why? Again, it's calling it to question God's holiness and righteousness. It's casting doubt upon His justice. John Calvin, who uh, does not mince words as it concerns these uh, issues, says this, quote, Monstrous surely is the madness of the human mind that it is more disposed to charge God with unrighteousness Than to blame itself for blindness. Again, monstrous surely is the madness of the human mind that it is more disposed to charge God with unrighteousness than to blame itself for blindness. And so Paul raises the question in order to answer it, to answer his detractors, to answer all those who who would think on this level of questioning God's righteousness, his fairness. And the question comes in response to his teaching on divine freedom and election from verses 6 through 13. And what is stated clearly in verses 6 through 13, which we read earlier, is that salvation is not based upon natural descent from Abraham or from good works or upon anything that originates in us or through fallen humanity. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is by grace and promise. Isn't that good news this morning? Salvation is by grace and promise. And so whatever sins or struggles you came into these doors with, remember this. Salvation is by grace and promise. It is not by your performance. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot be good enough. You say, oh, I'm not good enough. You're right, you're not good enough, but Christ was good enough, and He came to live and to die for your sins, for your salvation. And so Paul reinforces this. Salvation is by grace and promise fulfilled in Christ, not by works and ethnic ties. To punctuate this point that salvation is by grace alone and that God's Word never fails, the apostle raises the doctrine of election beginning in verse 6. Of course, he touches upon it in other parts of Romans that we've already studied, but here it's, it's concentrated. And Paul points to Jacob and Esau. They were twins, born of Isaac and Rebekah, born the very same day. They were born with original sin. They were both born with hard and unbelieving hearts. But God, in the free exercising of his sovereign will, According to the praise of His glorious grace, before either child had been born or done anything good or bad, He chose Jacob and not Esau. God set His saving love upon undeserving Jacob. He foreloved him and passed over undeserving Esau, leaving him in his sin. Neither one deserved God's grace. Only one of them, according to God's good pleasure, received it. Look with me again at verses 10 through 13. When Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I Hated. Remember the definition given by Wilhelmus Abrakel. This election is not due to God looking into the future and seeing your faith. He calls it foreseen faith. He does not look into the future, see foreseen faith, and then choose no, if that were the case, then salvation would be no longer by grace, but by what? By works. Faith would be a work. But as we understand faith, we see that it is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. We are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any man should we would have reason to boast if God looked through the portals of time and saw us expressing faith and then set his love on us, making it some kind of salvation by cooperation. We would have reason to boast. But we do not. Over and over again, Paul says in his epistles, Peter says in his epistles, John says in his epistles, we have no reason to boast. If we have any reason to boast, it is in Christ. Our Lord, we boast in our weakness. We can boast in our frailty. We can boast in our inability, while at the same time we boast in Christ and his work of salvation for us. This is what Paul states in the previous chapter in chapter eight and verse 30, when he writes, and those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Dear one, salvation cannot be the result of good works or ethnic ties or good intentions or religious sentimentalism or anything else found in man. If If it is purposed by our sovereign God from eternity past, it can't be those things. If it is accomplished by our sovereign God through Christ in the first century, it could not be those things. And if it's applied by our sovereign God through the Spirit in our lives and throughout eternity, it cannot be salvation by works. It's all of grace. It's the message of Jesus in John 6. It's the message of Paul in Ephesians 1. It's the message of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. It's the message of the entire Bible. God is sovereign, and he exercises his sovereignty according to his will, and he is never unjust in doing so. And what a comfort it is that God is in control and not some tyrannical ruler somewhere. Not some group somewhere, not our own hearts. And notice that Paul emphasizes this point that God is not unjust by highlighting his mercy, by highlighting his mercy. It's God's mercy that actually highlights God's truth and justice. This brings us to our second heading, a portrait of sovereign mercy and compassion. Look with me at verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Remember, Paul is answering the objections that he knows will be raised by his countrymen the Jews, and so he He paints, or rather he points to key Old Testament figures to illustrate his point. He's already drawn attention to Abraham, saying that all children uh, uh, that are offspring of Abraham aren't actually the offspring of Abraham because those who are the true sons and daughters of Abraham are those that have faith, whether Jew or Gentile. We saw that in Galatians a few weeks ago. He brings up Isaac, uh, who is the child of, of promise. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not his child with Hagar. It's not Ishmael. It's, it's, it's Isaac, the child of promise. And so salvation does not come through uh, natural descent, but it comes through promise. Uh, then he brings uh, awareness to Jacob and Esau. And here he presents Moses arguably the greatest leader of Israel, the one whom God used to deliver his people from under the bondage of Egypt. This reference that Paul brings to light here is from Exodus 33 and verse 19. Exodus 33 and verse 19. And the context of this is Moses meeting with God in the tent of meeting. It says there in Exodus 33 that God... And and Moses spoke as friends, as if face to face. And so Moses is acting as a kind of mediator between God and the people. The people waited to hear what God said to Moses. Moses is interceding for them. And it's in this intimate meeting that God says to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Dear ones, let this not be lost on you. Moses is a recipient of God's mercy and grace. You think about his life, the way the Lord protected him, guided him, saved him, gave him a new heart, and then made him a leader of his people, Israel. He himself is a a recipient of God's sovereign grace and mercy. And as Moses intercedes for Israel, a nation that would in the future become deeply idolatrous and wicked, God makes it clear that he will be gracious to whom he will be gracious and merciful to whom he will be merciful. Remember, Old Testament, Israel received all these covenant promises, but there was always a remnant who believed those promises. To make it ever so clear, Paul then writes in Romans 9, 16, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Dear ones, mercy, by definition, is that which is given to the undeserving, to someone who owes a debt of some kind. Therefore, it is not unjust or unrighteous for someone to give mercy to one person and not to another it's perfectly within their their rights certainly god has the right as god to show mercy to one and not to another god is indebted to no one and his mercy is in no way a compromise of his righteousness why well because jesus christ fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf by perfectly obeying the law of God. And then as a perfect righteous substitute, he laid his life down on the cross and paid the debt of our sins. And so God's God's showing mercy is in no way a suspension of his justice. He's not unrighteous in showing mercy. He doesn't forfeit his justice in order to show mercy. He upholds his justice through the death of his Son. So, as we learn from Romans 3.26, so that God might be just and what? Justifier of the one who has what? Faith in Jesus. God is just And justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, because the one who has faith in Jesus is forgiven of his or her sins and robed in his very righteousness and standing before God, no longer condemned, but now counted as righteous, declared righteous, not because of his own works or her own works, but solely through faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the glory of the gospel. The gospel is not good news if it's do better and be better. The gospel is not good news if the minister says, here's your list, now go do it, and come back and let me know how it goes. It is an atrocity when there are worship services and discipleship programs and ministries that do not emphasize at every step this. Glorious gospel of grace, which is the very center of the Bible's message. From beginning to end, it is Christ. Spurgeon said, as all roads in England lead to London, so all passages of Scripture ultimately lead to Christ. And so God does not suspend his justice. He perfectly satisfies his justice in the gift of his son for the unrighteous. United to Jesus Christ, we are clothed in his righteousness, and our sins have been atoned for. United to Christ, we are justified and adopted as sons into God's family. United to Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit and under spiritual renovation, whereby we are being conformed more and more to the image of God. Of Christ, united to Christ, we are objects of god 's saving, sovereign mercy, and compassion, and nothing, therefore can snatch us out of his hand Now that is good news this morning. Jesus says in John chapter ten verses twenty five through thirty quote "The works that I do in my father 's name he 's speaking to the Pharisees here." The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now listen, verse 28, John chapter 10. This is our Lord speaking. I give them, my sheep, eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So many Christians that I've met over the years who think that their salvation is a salvation by cooperation, are constantly struggling with their place, with their place in Christ, with their place in the church, with their their place in Christian relationships. And they are waking up every day like a child with a flower who has a crush on someone and saying, she loves me, she loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not. Or the girl who's saying of some young man, he loves me, he loves me not. We think about God like this. He loves me, he loves me not. And a lot of times it's based on how we are performing. I had a quiet time every day this week. He loves me. I've been to church six weeks in a row. He loves me. I haven't had a quiet time in two weeks. He loves me not. My zeal Is at a low ebb. He loves me not. I've witnessed to three people this week. He loves me. I haven't witnessed to someone in three months. He loves me not. And you see, here is where there's great confusion in the Christian life. We think that our relationship with God is primarily based on our performance, and it is not. It is based on God's mercy, it is founded upon His grace. His grace, which he has clearly set forth in the person and redemptive work of his son. And it's by his grace and by his spirit that he enables us through faith to cling to him. And so we know as we are walking with him and there's the ebb and the flow of the Christian life. That the Lord always has us and we can trust him. This is no occasion to take him for granted or to re-crucify him, as it says in Hebrews chapter 6. This is an occasion to live for his glory, to please him, to honor the one who has shown such grace and mercy to us. What do you want to do when someone gives you a wonderful gift? You want to thank them. You want to honor them. You want to please them. And so what God has purposed by his grace, he will accomplish. And this is comforting news to our weary souls. Now, Paul isn't finished. He moves from Moses, one of God's elect, to Pharaoh, an enemy of God. And an enemy to Israel, and here we have a picture of sovereign power and judgment, verses 17 and 18. Look with me at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. First. Paul highlights Moses and then Pharaoh. But why? Why does he do this? Well, here Paul quotes from Exodus again, this time from Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16. Exodus 9, 16. In that text, God proclaimed to wicked Pharaoh that he himself, that he himself for his own sovereign purposes raised Pharaoh to prominence as the great king of Egypt. It wasn't ultimately the people of Egypt that raised him to prominence or his family ties or his personal giftings. No, it was the invisible hand of God that brought him to prominence, that placed him in his position. And dear ones, God did this to display his awesome power to show forth his divine strength as he unleashed the plagues upon Egypt and delivered his people Israel through the Red Sea. And God's name was indeed proclaimed throughout the earth as nations feared him when they heard about what he had done. God raises up pagan nations like Assyria and Babylon to carry out his will. We see this throughout the Old Testament. He raises up pagan kings, presidents, prime ministers, and dictators To accomplish his mysterious decrees, God has mercy on some and he hardens others. This word hardens is sometimes hard to take and it is because of misunderstanding. The word is understood as if God was hardening a soft, good, moral, and pliable heart. How could God do this to Pharaoh when he was such a good man? When he had such a good heart? This is what we think. But we know from Romans 1.18 through Romans 3.20 that Pharaoh did not have a soft, good and pliable moral heart. Nobody does. Nobody is born with this. Everybody is born with the light off. And so... If the lights were off in this sanctuary, boys and girls, and I said, hey, can you go turn the light off? Pastor, that's a strange question. The light's already off. I can't turn off what's already off. And the same goes for this. God hardens his heart, but his heart was already hardened. It wasn't as if the light was on and he turned it off or that his heart was soft and he made it hard. no. We must understand this differently. When it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it is conveying that as an act of divine judgment, he further hardened an already unbelieving heart. Why? So that he could display his power in delivering Israel from his hands. Think about Pharaoh's reactions to Moses. Every time one of these terrible plagues came, Pharaoh initially was like, yes, just go, just leave, just go. And then you say, nope, I changed my mind. And then another plague would come. And then that same cycle. Moses' heart was was hardened in his unbelief and his rebelliousness and his contumacy. Why? So that God could display his power over the heavens and the earth and show his love for his people. A similar principle applies in Romans chapter 1 when it states that God delivered the wicked over to their idolatry lust, and wickedness as an act of judgment. God has what is called restraining grace in the world so that men and women are not as evil in their actions as they could be, so that everybody's not a Charles Manson or a Hitler. God restrains sin in the world. Praise God that he does that. He restrains the sin of evil men but he also gives people over to it. Therefore, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Beloved, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are beyond our ways. This is especially true as it concerns divine freedom and election in the salvation of sinners. Isn't this what moved the Apostle Paul to write At the conclusion of Romans 11, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 11, 33 through 36. I cannot wait to preach on this in a couple of years. (laughs) Romans 11, 33 through 36. Of course, in Romans chapters 10 and 11, we have Paul continuing to talk about the, the mysteries of God's salvation in relationship to Israel But then at the end of all of this discussion in chapters 9 through 11, Paul uh, declares this kind of doxology. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So as we conclude, let's remember that our understanding of God and his ways must not be fashioned on the canvas of our own minds, And hearts. No, it must come from God's revelation of Himself in His inspired Word. Bible commentator Robert Mounts explains that, God's freedom to do that which is in accordance with His will does not sit well with many moderns whose philosophy of life stems from a combination of relativism. And belief in personal autonomy. For the Christian, however, it is important to build one's theology not on personal perceptions of what ought to be, but upon biblical revelation of the character and purpose of God. And so, dear ones, let us look to Scripture for the truth about God and his ways of salvation. And as we do, let us not be led to an incessant speculation about the secret things of God we are dealing with mysterious things here we have what we have in scripture we seek to understand it but to go beyond that really enters an area that we do not belong it's an area of speculation and we ought not live in a perpetual state of speculation but keeping our eyes on Christ and his promises Let us look to Christ, the Savior of sinners. And, dear ones, his call to repent and believe the gospel goes out to all. Because, as we will see and learn in more detail, these things that we are considering now from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 18, do not remove human responsibility, and they also do not discount secondary means. Because God works through means, primarily through his son, but also his son ordaining the word of God and the sacraments and prayer as those divinely ordained means whereby he saves his people. And so let us stop clinging to the empty promises of the world and the unreliable assumptions of our own hearts Instead, let us cling to the promises of God fulfilled in Christ. Let us receive God's sovereign grace and mercy through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Let us abide in Him. And if you do not know Him now, if you are perhaps sensing a drawing to Him, and you are like Wesley who was walking down that London street as an unbeliever, and then his heart was, as he said it, strangely warmed towards God, towards his love, towards his grace. If that is you, then come, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Turn from your sin, turn from your idolatry, turn from those empty, vapid things that this world offers, and look to Christ, who is life and who is salvation. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful text of Scripture. We thank you that here Paul is defending you as the one true and sovereign God. And we thank you, Lord, that as the sovereign God, you have not left us all in our sin and misery, but you have shown mercy. We thank you for your mercy. And we pray that by your grace, we would know your mercy and cling to Christ alone. His blood and righteousness for our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.